Welcome to Horses and Bayonets, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical and security developments. In today's episode, I am joined by Sophia Kiersted. Sophia is an analyst in the US government after having previously worked in a variety of research positions. Among these, she has spent time at the Southern Poverty Law Center, where she produced insights into the white nationalist movement, as well as at the Chicago Project on Security Threats, where her research included the radicalization of US citizens. I would like to specify that all the views expressed today are her own and not the US government's. In today's episode, we discuss a framework for understanding right-wing extremism and terrorism, as well as how the discourse around terrorism influences our policy prescriptions. It was a pleasure speaking with Sophia, and so I'm pleased to announce there will be a part two to the conversation in the coming weeks. Hi, Sophia. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. I wanted to take advantage of your knowledge of extremism, as well as the events on the 6th of January in the US, to dig a little deeper on the topic of right-wing extremism. One thing that's frustrated me about listening to a lot of the description of the capital siege are these quite general comments about those who are involved in the siege. And quite often the words extremism and terrorism get thrown around left, right and center. And I think it would be quite useful to begin this discussion by examining what we really mean by these terms. Yeah. So scholars have uh, for a long time written about the complex issues involved in trying to find a universal definition of terrorism. Some scholars have said that it's simply impossible to define the term and that rather an observer would know it when they saw it. In addition, other scholars have said that the term is really so broad and devoid of meaning that maybe the only honest definition of terrorism is an explicitly subjective one, which is that it's violence I don't support. But there are other factors that are actually crucial to delineating when actions taken by a group or individual constitute terrorism or not. And these include but aren't limited to violence, threats, indiscriminate violence, political motivation, targeting civilians, non-combatants, deliberate attempts to publicize this violence too. And so interestingly, the United Nations actually prohibits activities associated with terrorism, but does not actually ban terrorism itself. But after 9-11 was when Western governments began to try to legally define terrorism as an entity separate from other criminal offenses. So the definition of terrorism as put forward by the United States Department of State in 1983 is one of the most widely used around the world. And it reads, terrorism is premeditated, politically motivated violence perpetrated against non-combatant targets by subnational groups or clandestine agents, usually intended to influence an audience. So the definition of terrorism and the designation of who perpetrates it is clearly controversial and always changing, but it's also heavily influenced by the prevailing political landscape. I think that's important to acknowledge here. And violent extremism is defined by the FBI as encouraging, condoning, justifying, or supporting the commission of a violent act to achieve political, ideological, religious, social, or economic goals, which is a mouthful. <laughs> Definitely. So it seems from the descriptions that you gave that a social, ideological, political, religious motivation and end goal is key to extremism. And then the terrorism definition seems an extension of that. So it's really the violent action in distinction to extremist beliefs that attempts to achieve these political or, or ideological end goals. How do those sorts of definitions then differ from something like uh, hate crime, for example? Hate crime databases tend to be really broad and encompass things like graffiti work even or something like that. So where does hate crime fall into this equation? So hate crime is 
more like a criminal classification. It's a way, at least in the U.S., it's a way to increase the sentencing of something that's already been done. So for instance, if someone murdered someone else and that murder was then deemed a hate crime, then that person could be prosecuted in a different way. But terrorism and either material, like materially contributing to a terrorist group or being a terrorist is very different in the legal system, and it's actually pretty hard to prosecute. So we've seen in the past a lot of people who might be involved in terrorist activities are in the justice system prosecuted very differently than you would think. And a lot of people on the right, a lot of conservatives typically try to make some sort of argument around bias surrounding these definitions. So why are these right-wing groups, for example, we're going to come to them later, but the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers in the US, the Three Percenters, why are these groups being labeled extremist organizations or why is an act perpetrated by one of these groups a hate crime, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, something like Antifa or rioters who are rioting under the banner of BLM, why do they not fall under something like a hate crime act? Right. So this is kind of a complicated thing to explain. And I can, I can actually sympathize for why some people might not understand why, you know, oh, these two groups both seem to have violent ends. You know, why can't they just be treated the same way? This is so hypocritical. But the one of the really valuable things I learned at the Southern Poverty Law Center was the notion that hate groups are mostly classified by the fact that they target people with um, immutable characteristics. And they they hate, the thing that they hate is an immutable characteristic. Antifa, they don't target or hate a quality of a person that is immutable. If they commit violence or if they condone violence, what they are against is the fascist ideology. And that is not an immutable characteristic. One quite interesting parallel to draw here is the amount of hate within right-wing groups uh, towards communism and the kind of frequent label of someone as a commie as a derogatory term. If accounting for all other traits, somebody was a white man from, for example, from uh, US heritage, but a communist and uh, targeted by one of those sorts of right-wing groups, then that would be something more along the lines of what we see from Antifa, because communism is not an immutable feature, whereas, for example, somebody's race, somebody's heritage is. And so that's kind of where that definition falls into place. And that really gets into how a lot of these groups try to mainstream their ideas and allow it to trickle into mainstream politics and other political parties that are often like anti-immigration or identitarian because they can couch their true goals, which are about people's immutable characteristics, with this notion of the liberal elites are preventing us from doing this, this and that. Completely agree. Okay, so we've touched on what extremism means and I think it's quite interesting now to look a little bit deeper into right-wing extremism. Obviously, this is not to say that left-wing extremism does not exist. And actually, CSIS, CSIS wrote a really great paper in 2020 looking at the rise of left-wing extremism in the US. And I do not want to, for a second, try and claim that that does not exist. However, the focus of today is right-wing extremism. That's my caveat out of the way. There we go. So... How can we look at right-wing extremism? Are there some fundamental features of it that hold right-wing extremist groups in common? 
Yeah. So contemporary right-wing extremism is a very dispersed transnational network, and it's made up of like about four main categories that develop primarily in the U.S. Most people in this network feel that they're part of an in-group and see themselves as enlightened, and they believe that they have shed a false consciousness by taking what is called the red pill. And so the first stream is composed of avowed white supremacists, mainly neo-Nazis. They draw on racial supremacy theories and cite pseudoscientific texts like Crania Americana. The second strand has a religious strain to it. Think like Ku Klux Klan the superiority of the Christian faith, referencing the importance of the rapture. Nowadays, its members claim that they want to prevent Islamicization and unchecked mass immigration, which then kind of bleeds into the third one, which is probably the largest umbrella, which is that right-wing populists who have these anti-immigrant and virulently nationalist political parties like the Party of Freedom in the Netherlands, the English Defense League, demagogues like Richard Spencer. A lot of these people subscribe to the Great Replacement or white genocide theories. You mentioned red pill there. Just for listeners, red pill refers to the the kind of matrix scene where Neo is invited to either take the blue pill or the red pill. The red pill, he will wake up and realize the world around him is not all that it seemed. And the blue pill, he can go back to the state of bliss and remain ignorant to what is actually really going on in the world. But you also touched there with the great replacement theory, and that actually kind of links to the red pill, right? There's this idea that we need to wake up to the Great Replacement. Could you expand on what the Great Replacement theory is? Yeah, so a lot of people subscribe to these theories, and though sometimes they are careful not to preach violence, or often they're careful not to preach violence because they know that it will get them in trouble with law enforcement, it allows them to play a role on the margins of mainstream politics. So it's generally understood as two core beliefs. The first is that Western white identity is under siege by massive waves of immigration from non-European or non-white countries, which results in the replacement of white Europeans who have demographic power, which is why it seems to be a problem for these people. The second is that the replacement has been orchestrated by a shadowy group, or more explicitly, a Jewish cabal, <laughs> as part of their grand plan to rule the world, which they will do by creating a completely racially homogenous society. So over time, their ideas have slowly trickled into mainstream parties or have even become the mainstream. Interfused with this moment is a fundamental rejection of traditional political parties who are portrayed as liberal elitists who have an internationalist, globalist agenda. And so like you were saying, like the red pill is a really common term that just signals like, I have awoken. And that's really common in the fourth strand of white ring extremism, which we might talk about more, which is you can kind of just call it others. They include incels, sovereign citizens, the alt-right, identitarians, anti-government extremist groups like the militia movement, also called the patriot movement, the boogaloo movement, which were a presence in the capital siege. Uh, a couple of groups that you touched on there, uh, especially the boogaloo movement, really requires us to kind of hone in what we mean by... Uh, right-wing extremism in the context of the U.S. because, for example, CSIS's paper that I referenced earlier didn't actually include the Boogaloo movement as a right-wing movement because there is some debate as to what the Boogaloo movement really means. And I personally take the view that it should. I think it's important, firstly, to really understand that every country has its own version of right-wing extremism. And in large part, its own unique history plays a huge role in that. So in Germany, you have different narratives around right-wing extremism that certainly have overlaps with the US, but it has its own 
history in its own context and informs the way that people think about these sorts of topics. And I really like your division of right-wing groups into four broad global categories. And I think in the context of the US, these can even be subsumed into three categories, racism, nativism, and anti-governmentalism. So racism is pretty self-explanatory. That's right-wing extremism that is targeting a minority ethnic group that is perceived to be threatening the pure whiteness of America's ancestry. And nativism is really about protecting American heritage, but doesn't necessarily need to be about race. It could be about, for example, religion. It could also be about a certain type of qualities of a very specific subset of immigration. And then lastly, anti-governmentalism and militia groups. Something that I wanted to say in response to something you mentioned a little bit earlier just there was that probably the worst thing I realized when I was doing research for the Southern Poverty Law Center, I was I was listening to this podcast put out by basically these alt-right identitarians, which is called The Daily Showa, and I'm not going to totally expand on <laughs> what they're saying in there. But if you're interested, definitely look up the Southern Poverty Law Center's intelligence report. There's some very good profiles on um, the people involved in that. But after listening to hundreds of hours of that, reading 8chan threads, reading the source materials that these guys were actually radicalized by, some of the casual things that they said reminded me that it's not just that far-right groups spread conspiracy theories and insidious notions into the mainstream, but that initial membership in these groups can often stem from the mainstream white anxieties about race and otherness. And so that kind of relates to what you were saying before, which is like how, like it can be so hard to figure out where is the line between this person has just a really offensive opinion and this person is part of a dangerous group um, and now we should somehow do something about the fact that this person is a part of a dangerous group. And so as a society, we have to start figuring out how to find that line and also what to do when that line is crossed. And that relates to the fact that the lack of a definition for the far right movement and the fact that many of its members operate within the boundaries of what is legal in the United States and defend their actions under protected speech and freedom of speech rights. So it means that it's really difficult to demand the removal of content from online platforms. And I personally think this is the greatest hurdle for the U.S. to overcome moving forward. I completely agree. There is a really great paper by the ICCT, International Center for Counterterrorism, which touches on that point exactly, which is that right-wing extremism, in contrast to perhaps other forms of terrorism, really relies on its political influence as a means to manipulate and influence debate. And the argument that they make is that perhaps outside of the US and Germany, right-wing extremism will not be the next big wave of terrorism. It's a very controversial statement, and I will leave the debate around that for another time. <laughs> but I think the point that they make about how effective right-wing extremism is at manipulating mainstream debate, manipulating mainstream political discourse is really interesting and I think possibly draws us onto the other big story from the past couple of weeks, right, which is the designation of the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization, along with, I hasten to add, two other very prominent US-based groups, the Base and Atomwaffen Division, along with a Russian-based white supremacist group, and I believe nine 
ISIS and Al-Qaeda related groups. But what I'd really like to dive into here is firstly, how does the Proud Boy designation as a terrorist organization link to what we were discussing with terrorism definitions? How can this be seen as a positive thing? How can we use legal language of terrorism to fight extremism? And where are the shortfalls? Right. So to recognize politically motivated far-right violence as terrorism, I think it's actually a more complicated question than first at first glance, because on face, recognizing this violence and bigotry as an internal security threat solves a feeling of hypocrisy in American or Western societies, frankly, because of how, how the war on terror has completely shaped our understanding of political violence. But there are also disadvantages to using this language, I think. So on the one hand, it acknowledges the reality of white extremist political violence and doesn't hold this double standard that we've been talking about. Terrorism, you might say terrorism can't only be a word we use to describe the threat of the black or brown other. Violence is organized by or inspired by the extreme right going unacknowledged as an action that actually can fit the definition is hypocritical and irresponsible, which is might be why we're here where we are today with rampant right-wing extremism as a problem in the US. And just on that point, I think it's worth Drawing attention to listeners, I mean, if they're questioning that delineation that you elaborated on there, even with the addition of these four white supremacist organizations this last week, there are still only six out of 73 of the organizations that Canada delineates as terrorist entities that have anything to do with white supremacy. The rest are Islamic jihadist groups. And the other two happened two years ago in 2019. So this is really something that we've been slow to the game on. Yeah, I think going off of what you said, I there's the issue of enhancing the police and security state to such an extent that with our language that labels everything terrorism, and this is happening globally and is used by regimes to justify a militarized security response and oppress populations. Mm -hmm. And so... I, th I think it'd be interesting to think about how terrorism, sedition, and insurrection are all state-defined terms. They're invoked to signal threat to the state and its legitimacy. And these are words that are commonly deployed against those considered outside the state. And historically, this has been indigenous, black, Muslim, Arab, Sikh, anarchist, left communities in the U.S. and Canada. So arguably, it could be oxymoronic to think that anti-terrorism can be deployed against white supremacists by the state's apparatus when in fact whiteness some people say is embedded in the state so trying to apply the same label to white supremacist groups to call their ideologies un-american or un-canadian almost misses the root of the problem perhaps which is that those ideologies are actually central and omnipresent force of violence in the u.s historically and today so you know we should consider the fact that the gray line between terrorist and freedom fighter suggests that the term is actually a socially constructed and often racialized concept. So now if we're trying to apply it to white supremacy, most of what that is doing is probably just expanding the excuse to extend security responses. Completely agree. And for a long time, the politicization of terrorism as a legal definition has kind of been overlooked. This past year, I think one of the starkest examples for me of the politicization came when Donald Trump kind of traded a terrorism definition with the country of Sudan in response for signing up to an agreement with the US. And it, I mean, you're either a state sponsor of terrorism or you're not. Regardless of whether you sign an agreement, that shouldn't make a difference. So I think that this is really pervasive in the language of terrorism and not just related to domestic terrorism. 
I also completely agree on the premise that this could kind of be distracting from a broader assault really that's needed on right-wing extremism more broadly. I definitely worry that the Canadian delineation will detract funds away from a more holistic campaign at countering hate speech, uh, misinformation, and all of the other wonderful things that contribute to extremism and more towards a reactive response to specific terrorist acts or specific actions within a terrorist organization. But on that, are there some positives to this? So classifying the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization allows a government to prosecute anyone or any organization that materially contributes to that organization. That can have an effect of skimming off people who are right on the borderline, people who realize, oh, if I contribute to these this group, I could potentially be prosecuted. And so that might prevent more people from joining, that might prevent the organization from gaining more funds, but it also might cause the people currently involved or the people kind of who've already crossed that bright line to dig deeper in. Definitely. And I think another aspect of this that I really want to draw attention to and I think is really controversial is kind of really returning to this politicization of the term. Um, Just prior to the designation coming into place, the Canadian Parliament actually voted explicitly on the Proud Boys to make them a terrorist organization, which is something I don't believe has been done before. They also were not voting on whether the other white supremacy groups were going to be a part of that. So the base in Atomwaffen and the Russian imperial movement were not part of that Canadian parliament vote, but the Proud Boys were. And just to give a bit of context to listeners here, the base in Atomwaffen are without a doubt terrorist organizations. The base is an accelerationist organization that wants to hasten the collapse of the US government and preempt a race war. They have been caught up with assassinations, bombings, the desire to poison water facilities, power stations. At the start of 2020, nine were arrested by the FBI on charges of these crimes. Asimovafen are connected to uh, up to five murders in the US alone. They have a very strong hatred of minorities, Jews and gays which provides the basis for a lot of their plots to bomb and to kill members of these uh, minority groups. The Russian imperial movement also is a St. Petersburg-based white supremacy organization that for ages now has been has been training American and Canadian groups in St. Petersburg. They kind of offer these training camps, like white supremacy training camps, to learn how to fight and be a white supremacist. And so the designation definitely applies to these groups. It is also great that it's applying to these groups. Finance is maybe less of an issue, but for example, groups that are now involved in training with the Russian imperial movement can be charged on terrorism offenses. Now, anybody who's a Canadian or a US citizen who takes a flight to go to St. Petersburg can be charged under terrorism offenses because of their involvement with the Russian imperial movement. Yeah. And the interesting difference between that and the Proud Boys is that the Proud Boys for a long time, led by Gavin McGuinness, had kind of a shtick where they would be just outside of that boundary. They would say, we really don't advocate for violence. It's Antifa. When Antifa comes around and they start trying to punch us, we'll punch back. But we're really not trying to start violence, which has, it's mostly agreed that that's not necessarily true. And even within the alt-right community, people who are more, for instance, the some of the talking heads on the podcast, The Daily Show, I had to listen to for the Southern Poverty Law Center, have said, you know, 
Davin McGinnis and his followers in the Proud Boys are, they'll, they use stronger language, but basically they'll say they're being weak and they're being kind of stupidly coy because we all know when it comes down to it, what these people actually believe, even if they won't say it publicly, is that Hitler was right, gas the Jews. That's exactly what someone said on this podcast. So it's kind of mutually acknowledged within the alt-right community that the ideology of the Proud Boys and the people that are involved in the Proud Boys goes much deeper and probably sympathizes with a lot of what Adam Waffen and the base are doing. But they, these individuals themselves are somehow less inclined to be so publicly bold about that. Yeah, they draw a line somewhere. And it's amazing that they have found a line here. And I'm kind of shocked that there is a line, but there is a line. And I think if we're going to be using a legal definition to delineate these organizations, we have to understand that we are putting a line on this. My worry here is that then we might start expanding this to look at Antifa, to look at BLM. Next time these groups go out and damage a statue, for instance, that people see as symptomatic of white supremacy in the US government, if somebody else is in power, do these groups start to pick up that sort of label? And I think at the moment, we've been very fortunate that Trump was unable to label Antifa a terrorism organization, probably because it is not an organization. There are a whole bunch of different subsets, but that's for another time. But I think this opens up the discussion for are groups who are violent on the street in defense of an ideology able to be labeled a terrorist organization? And that for me is pretty worrying here. Yeah, exactly. I think that circles back to my comments about how we might have to come to terms with the fact that the terrorist designation is a socially constructed term. It's every time an academic paper tries to get down to it, they come back to the idea that we create who we call terrorist, who we call freedom fighter. It's not an objective, it's not an objective material thing. So I think kind of what you were saying about the concern that this designation will then circle back relates to the fact that this discursive debate about who to call a terrorist, who do not, has material consequences, mostly for those who are on the receiving end of criminalization and securitization, which is often indigenous, black, Muslim, left communities. One thing before we close that I think is really important to move towards, we've spoken about how the definition of terrorism has been politicized. And I think another elephant in the room here to discuss really is the lone wolf. And I would love if you could touch on what the lone wolf is and how that fits into this discussion on how we use discourse to address things like terrorism. Right. Western society has erroneously prescribed the lone wolf myth to both Islamic extremism and right-wing extremist phenomena. And so this myth has had an impact on our policy prescriptions and our misunderstanding of far-right radicalization. So the term which describes an individual actor that strikes alone, um, who is not affiliated or at least officially affiliated with any larger group, has been used by security officials, politicians, journalists, the media, the general public a lot in the past decade or so. Attacks by groups with a kind of hierarchy, a defined chain of command have become rarer as the U.S. security establishment has switched its focus away from al-Qaeda. And so now, especially with the rise of ISIS and our increasing recognition of the threat of far-right extremism, the prevalence of terrorist networks and 
individuals that act uh, like kind of a separately from them, but are inspired by them has grown. So this gave our society and our security establishment a kind of new box to try to figure out this new vocabulary. Like, how do you describe these people? And a lone wolf is a very kind of sexy term for that because it feels very dangerous. Um, and it also implies that this person doesn't really have the official and institutional connections that allow the security establishment to anticipate what they're going to do and fix these problems before they happen. It, it gives kind of a certain innocence to the issue. So because labels frame the way we see the world and influence attitudes and eventually policies, we should talk about how the lone wolf myth actually obscures what's going on. Very often terrorists who are initially labeled lone wolves actually have active links to established groups. Any terrorist, however socially or physically isolated, is still part of a broader movement. So seeing this violence as a social act could change our whole approach. We took the 9-11 attacks seriously because we believe them to be collective efforts launched by organized and effective groups. But what we have to understand is that these categories of attackers that we would call a lone wolf might strike alone without guidance from formal terrorist organizations, but they've had contact with loose networks of people who share extremist beliefs. Either they've had this contact face-to-face -face or they've had this contact online. And we've seen countless times the really famous kind of lone wolf attacks they lie on and are inspired by their connection online to people who share their beliefs. They're, this increases the their radicalization, but it also gives them a way to advertise this thing that they're plotting. And they are aware that they have an audience and their audience then looks back at previous actions. And then there are copycat attacks about previous famous actions. So like a famous one would be the Christchurch shootings where people posted manifestos upon manifestos. And this is a way to memorialize themselves. But it's necessarily social. And they live streamed it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so part, it, so to call it a lone wolf attack, the language itself implies it doesn't rely on a group whatsoever. It's not a social act, but it really is. And so thinking of these killers as lone wolf actors makes it easier to dismiss them as like these demented individuals, which hapless victims of bad parenting and their self-destructive misfits, which also gets into the issue of excusing a lot of white violence, but or talking to them as like erratic evil doers. But we need to see lone wolf white supremacists for what they are, which are members of wolf packs. And so then the policy prescription kind of changes. Terrorism is no longer not something that is done just alone, but people become interested in ideas, ideologies, and activities because other people are interested in them. Perpetrators want to become famous. And so our policy prescriptions have to shift from how do we reactively respond to lone wolves to how do we proactively change the social interactions that drive how attractive being a lone wolf seems. Definitely. And I think lone wolf benefits all actors at play. For one, terrorists benefit because there's nothing more alarming than this idea of a lone wolf who could attack at any time. The public should be in fear. The security services benefit because 
if anybody could be a lone wolf, how are we going to be able to prevent these attacks from happening if a couple slip through the cracks? Um, that's obviously going to happen. I think the public benefits because it prevents us from tackling the root ideology behind these individuals, for example, with white supremacy extremism. If it's a lone wolf, then it's detached from other people who also subscribe to the same beliefs that that individual had. And then fourth, technology platforms. If this isn't a lone wolf, this is a part of a, a social network, perhaps that social network is now online. But if they're a lone wolf, then we can delineate the line between the social network that that individual had online and the way that that contributed to them perpetrating these attacks. Two aspects that you touched on that I would love for you to expand on. You know, I always like to end with this million dollar question of how we actually solve this giant mess that we're in. The first is you spoke about them being inspired online. And the second is you spoke about the disperception of them as socially inept, secluded, isolated from the rest of society, perhaps unemployed. If these sorts of things are not true, what are some of the recommendations that you would make? And how does the the realization of the myth of the lone wolf influence that? I think we may have to continue this in a part two, but if there are any key takeaways for today. Yeah, so I think we can all agree that somehow governments and maybe tech companies alongside them will have to figure out how to respect the freedoms of expression and privacy, but also protect their citizens by proactively monitoring for the spread of potentially harmful content on public social media channels and designating disinformation narratives and the group responsible as threats when appropriate. It's a really tough question, but I'm really looking forward to talking about in that in part two. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for your insight. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you again in part two. Thank you so much for having me.